0: Trigger warnings for this episode include the discussion of sexual assault and rape, homophobia, suicidality, mental illness, and religious persecution. Please proceed with caution. Doomed by God is who does what lots people did. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is one so well-known in the public consciousness that you have likely come across it even if you are not Christian or Muslim. This story, depicting two cities destroyed by God for their moral trespasses, can be found in both the Bible and the Quran, and has for many, many centuries been cited as the grounds for the persecution of sexuality-diverse individuals. As a consequence, sexually diverse Christians and Muslims have been ostracized, brutalized, and even killed for the supposedly incommensurable nature of their religious and sexual identities. Although research in many parts of Europe, the UK, and USA has turned its focus to the experiences and challenges of gender- and sexuality-diverse Christians, Comparatively, very little has been done within the sphere of human rights research to document and investigate the experiences of LGBTQ Muslims. But how does one marry Islamic faith and sexual diversity? And how has the Quran been used, or misused, to propagate homophobic beliefs? Here in Cape Town, South Africa, we bring these questions to the first openly queer imam, and confront the challenges that lie in bridging the divide between homosexuality and the practising of Islam. Welcome to episode 23 of Slash Queer. You're here with me, your host, Georgie Williams. Following on from our brief stopover in Turkey... Our next port of call took us farther south than any venture before in the history of the slash queer project, to the southernmost edge of Africa in Cape Town. Arriving here with three months ahead of us, our intentions were to document matters of gender and sexuality in the context of South African culture and, eventually, the culture of Lesotho, a country landlocked by surrounding South Africa. All the way back in episode one of this project, We talked a little about the importance of positionality, of our own individual perspectives and lived experiences, feeding into the work that we do, creating unique lenses and, at times, creating biases. I was incredibly aware that in creating the following episodes in South Africa, my own perspectives and potential biases would be present. I am half South African, My birth mother was born in Glasgow, Scotland, but my father was born in Benoni, a small town just east of Johannesburg, in Hauteng Province. Having left in the 1990s, my father put effort into making sure I understood much of the socio-cultural climate of South Africa when I was young. But my experiences of South African culture are limited, both in my growing up outside of this country and also in my whiteness. The limitations of my lens will almost certainly affect my interpretation of interview content in our current episode, having grown up far away from any real-life experience of Islamic culture. I have tried in earnest to defer to reputable research and the work of Muslim scholars to inform my analysis, as well as employing the guidance of colleagues who have personal and professional experience regarding Islamic practices and values. But as always, I encourage listeners to consider how, in spite of my best efforts, my perspectives and unconscious biases may inform the analysis I present. I knew before my arrival that Cape Town boasted a diverse community, particularly in the context of religion. Although Muslims account for only 1-2% of South Africa's population, They account for around 5-10% of Cape Town's population. I also knew in advance who I wanted to talk to about sexuality and Islam, after reading an article about his work in the Guardian newspaper. But I wanted to conduct my own interview, and allow him to tell the story of his work in his own voice. Imam Mushin Hendrix is known globally as the first openly queer Imam. At great risk to his life and safety, he came out publicly in 1996. Imam Hendrix started his important work, hosting events for LGBTQ Muslims, back in 1998, and given his extensive experience, I believed he may be one of the most important voices in the conversation surrounding how attitudes towards gender and sexuality diversity have changed, both for Muslims in South Africa and around the world over the past 25 years.
1: So I'm Imam Mohsin Hendricks. Uh, I'm born and bred in Cape Town. Um, Often people think that I'm Pakistani, but it's only because I studied there (laughs) for so many years. Um... And uh, I'm currently the executive director of the al Foundation. And I'm also the imam of the mosque that is attached to the organization. So, well, I think there's uh, a couple of key players that are that were involved in uh, or instrumental in the change that we can see um, over the last 30 years. I only work within a particular sector, which is you know islam sexual orientation and gender identity so working very much in a religious bubble sometimes um but certainly we've had made some um uh, contribution to towards um, the status quo and uh, i think the kind of contribution that we've made was you know um being instrumental in the passing of the civil union bill in 2006 um, I'm also now an, a marriage officer, so it is a service that we could provide to the LGBTIQ community. Even though not everybody wants to get married, but to know that that service is actually available uh, was a great achievement for us. And I and I think if I gauge over the last thirty years, the uh, the fact that we have youth, uh, more youth coming out. Um, uh, from the age of fifteen, sixteen already, where where my my age people came out at about you know in the late thirties, so that's and that's because there's so much of information available now, you know, on the internet and so on, um, and and many more safe spaces that were created for the LGBTI community, that it makes it easier for them to just you know as access these uh, organizations and the support that they need. And like I said, it's not just our organisation that contributed towards it, but organisations like Triangle Project, Inclusive and Affirming Ministries, and so. And it's uh, the fact that we can work together in a network, you know, kind of, also provides that alternative voice, um, that sometimes has to, to be heard in the in the din and the noise of, of orthodoxy.
0: Although Imam Hendricks was right in acknowledging the impact of homegrown South African organisations changing the climate around gender and sexuality diversity, power of the individual in these moments is often understated. Imam Hendricks himself represents something significant for young queer Muslims, and this is a matter upon which he was very comfortable to elaborate.
1: And I think I, I think also what um, what's important maybe for me to mention is is my role as an openly queer imam. Um, so I'm not just an openly queer Muslim, but I'm an openly queer imam. And for a lot of youngsters to see that 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 can be a role model, you know, for them. Um, just knowing that I exist is is hope for them that you can be queer and Muslim at the same time.
0: Imam Hendrix also had a lot to say about how the Qur'an's teachings on sexuality are interpreted and often misinterpreted.
1: Okay, so firstly I would say that um, in my experience, I don't think that God is homophobic or that the Qur'an is homophobic, but that perhaps our interpretations of it becomes homophobic. And often I say that the Qur'an is the divine word of God um, we cannot change it. But when there's human agency involved in the interpretation of it, you know, it changed in many different ways. And And unfortunately, the patriarchy has had an overwhelming influence in how we understand Islam today and how we understand the position of women and the position of the LGBTI people in, in, in Islam. So so after my 18 years of research, I came to realize that the, the entire story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's in the Quran, that is spread over 10 different chapters, amounting to about 96 verses, that only four of those verses talks about male-to-male sexual interaction. And in and in the three incidences that that happened, it was all constructed homosexuality. Now I often have to unpack what constructed homosexuality means. It just means that the people who are engaging in um, a homosexual acts, they do not uh, necessarily identify or have a sexual homosexual orientation, but that it's constructed either around polytheism. Um, it's constructed around um, power. Um, so, for example, if you look in prisons where men have sex with other men, they don't necessarily identify as gay. So there's some form of injustice that happens within that equation. And in all three of these incidences, and if I can just quickly mention it to you, it's the one is where men were molested on the highway. Um, this was the King's Highway that was passing through the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So these cities became stopovers. And these people became sort of arrogant and, and defying the law of Abram, which is the law of hospitality that you need to give foreigners and waferers, um, you know, space uh, or place to stay overnight mm-hmm. and they got kind of tired of this practice and so they started uh, robbing the caravans from them of their merchandise and then molesting the men and sending them off naked into the desert as the bible explains to us so that was clearly homosexual it's uh, constructed and then the second incident was where the i mean the, the the one of the major gods that were worshipped in Sodom was ishtar and ishtar was the goddess of love and fertility and and victory and war and so on and so so besides the the temple prostitution that happened in the in the in the temple of ishtar men also believed that if they have sex with one another more sperm is being produced and if they they offer their fertility to ishtar ishtar will then in turn um make their lands fertile you know so it was a polytheistic kind of a belief, and so the the practice of homosexuality became institutionalized you know in the temple of um so to an extent where some people who come to worship at the temple were forced into having participating in these orgies, then the third incident was the cherry on top where the two angels comes to lot, who's the the prophet um as guest. And uh, Lot kind of uh, shielding them from shielding them from the the inmates of uh, Sodom, and, uh, of Sodom. and uh, they coming to year that uh, Lot is entertaining guests, and so the the whole community comes rushing to Lot's house demanding that he should give up these guests, and the Quran used specific words like khaziyah, uh, fadaha and uh, rawadu, indicating that they wanted to molest these men. So in all three of these places, it's got nothing to do with sexual orientation, right? So an an innocent person who says that I innately feel attracted to the same sex, it's not something that I have chosen and it's not something that I can also, you know, pop a pull and it will go away tomorrow. You cannot use that story as a blanket condemnation for an innocent person like that. Now, unfortunately, the the fiqh or the Islamic jurisprudence hasn't covered that aspect of our human existence, right? It was always just focusing on the the constructed homosexuality and 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 people sort of mixing the two, saying that, oh, it's it's talking about homosexual, so you know, it everybody who's homosexual is sort of covered under that. And uh, so my research is basically saying, look. Let's open that window and say and admit that maybe we have a, a, a shortage in our understanding of this issue and that it needs to be teased out a little bit more and that the, the that the fiqh or the Islamic jurisprudence needs to expand to be inclusive instead of exclusive. So that's really my where I'm coming from.
0: Of course very few Imams approach the subject of gender and sexuality in the way Imam Hendricks does. As I discussed the Imams' work with him, I had to ask how he felt about the responsibility Imams had to their community in interpreting and proliferating the word of the Quran accurately, as someone who has dedicated their career to confronting its misinterpretation. Imam Hendricks had much to say about this matter, as well as how he believes these spiritual elements of Islamic teachings on sexuality can be incorporated into the experiences of sexuality diverse muslims
1: so so then then the other thing that is important to mention is that often when when people like myself, when we stand up for our right or claiming our identity or our sexual identity, we're often being seen as licentious or immoral and i think that um that the the you know the 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 values and the the boundaries that are set around sexual activity within the quran it's still something that i as a gay person also have to adhere to right and if you really look at what lies behind these boundaries what are the values that god wants us to protect it's things like you know I mean, now recently, um, sexologists will talk about, uh, you know, we have to be um, selective about our sexual partners because of the transference of sexual energy. And sometimes we're feeling depressed and whatever. We don't know why, because we've been sleeping with 10 people that have brought us up energy that... We don't really need in our lives. So perhaps that was one reason why why we shouldn't just go and sleep with everybody, you know? So I mean those kind of values, um, it's universal. So so if it is about protecting those kind of values, then then I'm all for it. But to say that a person hasn't got the right to um to have a, an intimate relationship with the person that they naturally attracted to. Some sort of an injustice there that I can't um, accept, and I don't think that that it, it's divinely intended also for it to be like that.
0: The imam's spiritual perspective on sexual behaviour and monogamous, or at least sexually committed, practices reflects values present in many organised religions. It also represents notions of civility and moral refinement which juxtapose the supposed immorality, or uncivilized practice, of polyamory, a more modern term used to describe consensual non-monogamous relationships. Polyamory and the general practice of non-monogamy has often represented conscious opposition to the values of many major organized religions, and the imam's internalization of these values ultimately represents his desire to align his identity with values within his religion which explain his own experiences with sexuality. Cultural anthropologist and queer theorist Gail Rubin summarized the moral subjectivities of different sexual practices in her seminal text, Thinking Sex, where she presented a sexual value system demonstrating what sexual practices were considered good or bad. Within the religious, psychiatric, or socially popular hierarchies, present in a predominantly Western society. Within the classifications of bad, unnatural, and abnormal, Rubin placed both casual sex and group sex. Rubin argues that sexual behaviours classified as bad, unnatural, or abnormal are denied the moral complexity or emotional nuances afforded to supposedly good, normal, or natural sex acts. Understanding the imam's approach to sexuality means acknowledging that where some of his perspectives are progressive, others are still grounded in ideas about sexual morality, which are subjective and ultimately more nuanced than what is presented in the scriptures of the majority of organized religions. Sexual judgment, in all its forms, may draw someone closer to a value system which provides them with comfort and a sense of belonging but can still stigmatise behaviours such as sexual non-monogamy, which could be argued to be entirely morally neutral when occurring in communicative and consensual contexts. When I met with the imam, he had recently travelled to Mombasa, Kenya, to provide one of his classes on reconciling faith with sexuality. Imam Hendrix's coming out drew attention from gender and sexuality diverse Muslims around the world and has allowed him to travel extensively to discuss the relationship between religion and gender and sexuality diversity. Given his experience, I had to ask him what his perspective was on the experiences of gender and sexuality diverse Muslims outside of South Africa.
1: Well, so Mombasa is just one place, um, but I've been—I've traveled to many different parts of the world: um, Bangladesh, uh, you know, Amsterdam, Pakistan. So I've seen uh, many different um, experiences of, of of gay people, and I think that there might be some differences. And I think in South Africa we're probably more um, privileged because of our constitution. But when it comes to being queer and Muslim, I think the, the challenges are pretty much the same for, for everybody. It's always that question of can I be queer and Muslim and you know, um and uh you know, and nobody wants to go to hell. So <laughs> I mean the whole pronunciation is that, you know, if you're going to be accepting yourself as queer then then automatically you're signing up for hell, you know. So, so these kind of and the and the negative messages around being queer and Muslim at the same time. I think it's just, you know, the it's sort of the impetus for you know raising the mental health issues in, in that so many people are experiencing in in all the countries that I've travelled to. Yeah, So I don't think that just because the only difference is that I'm privileged in South Africa and I I have the right to get married and and so on. But other than that, the challenges are pretty much the same.
0: Hendricks notes the privileges many gender and sexuality diverse South Africans benefit from with regards to their constitution. A lesser known fact about life in South Africa is that its constitution promulgated by President Nelson Mandela on December 18th, 1996, is one of the most progressive national constitutions in the world. Section 9 outlaws discrimination based on gender, sex, and sexual orientation, which was a radical inclusion in the global political arena of the mid-1990s. South Africa also legalized gay marriage in 2006, long before many Western countries, including the USA and the UK. Legally, LGBTQ plus South Africans have the same rights as non-LGBTQ plus South Africans. But this, unfortunately, does not reflect the social freedoms afforded to gender and sexuality diverse citizens of South Africa. Although experiences vary drastically between urban and rural areas, homophobic violence, including incidences of corrective rape, where a victim is raped on the incorrect grounds that it would make them heterosexual, is rife across the country. This mirrors South Africa's track record regarding violence against women, both of which are matters set against the backdrop of stark socioeconomic inequality across the country. Disparities undoubtedly exist between the legal reassurances of South Africa's constitution and the stark reality of the lived experiences of many disadvantaged or socially ostracised South Africans, but egalitarian legislation is a fallback that many countries do not have, including numerous other African countries. Another matter I sought Hendrik's perspective on was that of emotional well-being and community building, within and outside of organized religion. It would be easy from an atheistic or agnostic perspective to dismiss the importance that religion plays in community building, and the sustaining of human connection. That within the fabric of organized religion, for all its dangers and propagation of harm, beneficial community structures can exist. Human connection and interconnection is, in many senses, an essential prerequisite for psychological well-being. The queer community, in itself, provides a similar web of connections particularly if someone has the good fortune of living in a queerly populated neighborhood. But for many, religion is the hinge on which connections are made and maintained, and in this lies the quandary. How does one hold onto a sense of faith, with the social benefits it often provides, when many of the practices and doctrines are weaponized against their kind? In conjunction with this matter, our conversation with the imam segued into a discussion of the impact of that social ostracism, a severing from one's religious community, on the mental health of gender and sexuality-diverse Muslims.
1: And so often you will hear people saying that, oh, the statistics are showing that the the mental health in LGBTI community is overwhelming. But why is it overwhelming? It's not because it's inherent in them, but it's because of the stigma and the rejection that they had to suffer all these years. Obviously, that will bring upon uh, you know mental health issues. So, so I think the kind of Islam that I'm practicing now and the, the Islam that I've been brought up with, it's it's it's, it's there's been quite a few changes. Um, I think the Islam that I identify with is in terms of its values that it promotes. Um, and I think that when we look at all the prophets, uh, and, and these are common prophets within the Abrahamic faiths, none of them came with religion. They all came with values. And when they passed on, we, we sort of organized religion out of those values that they left us with. So I think that if we're talking about and Islam that would work for the 21st century is, is kind of going back to what were these values that these these prophets have left us with. And these are the same values that's in the Quran, the same values that's in the Bible, you know, values like peace, justice, um, compassion, and all of that. And so the reason why I I have uh, uh, decided to remain Muslim, it's because those values are also entrenched within the rituals, you know, so the rituals kind of help you to nurture those values and vice versa.
0: The taboo surrounding LGBTQ plus identifying Muslims remains strong. Strong enough that, for this episode, I could not source any statistics on the mental health and welfare of LGBTQ plus Muslims in South Africa. In general, the findings regarding the mental health of gender and sexuality diverse South Africans was disheartening. In a report by Muller, Daskovich, and the Southern and East African Research Collective on Health, their report, based on the surveying of 832 LGBTQ identifying participants, found that the levels of depression, anxiety, suicidality, and substance use were much higher compared to those reported for the general South African population. of participants reported being classified as depressed, with 53% of black participants and 62% of gender minority participants reporting this too. This can be compared to estimates of depression in the general South African population, ranging between 5% and 37%. 61% of participants in this study also reported suicidal ideation at some point in their lifetime. Other studies shed a little more light on the experiences of LGBTQ plus Muslims. A paper titled Religion, Spirituality, and LGBTQ plus Identity Integration, by Begin and Hattie, found extensive reports of psychological and emotional harm perpetrated within organized religions towards gender and sexuality diverse individuals. Another paper, titled Identity Experience Among Progressive Gay Muslims in North America, a qualitative study within al fatiha I Minwala et al. looked at the reported experiences of gay men who were part of the US-based internet movement called al fatiha pushing for the acceptance of gender and sexuality diversity within Muslim communities. In echoing the findings of the previous study regarding harm perpetrated within religious communities, they also acknowledged how, for Muslims, same-sex attraction does not, by definition, nullify the cultural imperative for heterosexual marriage. What this means is that there is still immense pressure faced by gender and sexuality diverse Muslims to follow tradition and marry into a relationship which is heterosexual presenting. The scarcity of research into these issues is emblematic of the persistent social taboo. But what little there is available paints a distressing and concerning picture of the welfare of LGBTQ Muslims. My final question for the Imam was broad, and very much designed to take advantage of his experience working with people within his faith. I wanted to understand what practicing Islam as a gay man meant for him, and what advice or guidance he had to offer for other gender and sexuality diverse Muslims.
1: I think it's a beautiful thing that um, you know. People, some people might kill me for this, but but that Muhammad has come up with for 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 Arabia to kind of you know save the the hostility and the um, and the, the the immorality that was that was so rife at the time. And uh, and I think it's a beautiful uh, system uh, for the 21st century, and it makes sense to me. So that's why I. I hold on to it, yes. And I think my advice for, for the LGBTI Muslim community specifically is um, if you are going to try and fit into an orthodox version of Islam, where there are so many rules and regulations that are sometimes mainly just based on s- classical scholarly opinions you're going to struggle finding a place within that kind of Islam. So it is important that you do research um, uh, a lot of these progressive scholars that have sort of um, rethink Islam for the 21st century. And so we're not saying that you're actually discarding Islam, but you're actually just re-looking at it and adopting the, the, the essence and the values of Islam instead of the dogma and, you know, and just fixating on the rituals because you need to go to heaven. (laughs) And I think that's, at the end of the day, I mean, isn't religion just the vehicle towards spirituality? And if your vehicle doesn't take you towards your spirituality, then there's something wrong with the vehicle. (laughs) So make sure you're on the right vehicle. And I think the right vehicle is is to hold on to the values that Islam promotes. That is both very useful and really lovely um
0: thank you so much welcome there is no denying the at times cataclysmic extent of the harm propagated in the name of religion against people of diverse gender sexual socioeconomic and racial backgrounds many great atrocities throughout history unfolded in the name of a crusade or religious mission and Islam is not exempt. During our time in Indonesia, we talked about the implementation of Sharia law in Aceh province, and how lives had been taken in Aceh in the name of policing morality, and that this morality policing was grounded in an extreme and highly rigid interpretation of Islamic scripture. Even during apartheid, which will be discussed in more depth in our next episode, Many large South African denominations of Christianity threw their weight behind this state-sanctioned system of extreme racial inequality and violence. Religion and the fight for equality have found themselves at loggerheads throughout the course of human history. But it would be myopic to attempt to envisage a world where the influence of religion does not exist especially on a social and cultural level. Inextricable from the structures of societies throughout the world, there would be nothing actionable in the suggestion that gender and sexuality-diverse individuals facing a conflict of faith and identity could always simply just leave their religious communities behind. There is a great difference between devout belief in a religious text and a desire to hold on to the family, friends, and loved ones a person may lose or become distanced from in removing themselves from a religious community. And in some places, especially more rural and isolated locations, that kind of severing of ties can be financially and psychologically devastating. It should not be a prerequisite for gender and sexuality-diverse people to tear themselves from many, sometimes all, of the people in their lives in order to be recognized and respected for their identities. Speaking as a white atheist from a suburban community, the teachings of Imam Hendricks are not for me and were not designed for people such as myself. That's because I am fortunate enough to not need them, although I am not unfamiliar to losing loved ones based on my gender and sexuality. I sincerely believe that in a world where religion can be so deeply interwoven into all that is familiar and secure for many people, the Imam's work can be life-saving. Organized religions can and do cause incredible harm, but the people raised inside them need complex lives and deserve to find peace in their identity Without having to leave behind a fundamental aspect of their upbringing and community. Beyond his research, what the Imam represents is a way to live as a queer person and as a Muslim, without conflict, without guilt, and without shame. This episode of the Slash Queer podcast was edited by Sam Clay, transcribed by Bronya Smith co-scripted by myself and Taha and produced and hosted, as always, by me, Georgie Williams. Many thanks to the incredible Imam Machine Hendricks for his invaluable contributions to this episode, and thanks also to Kamala Hussein for her assistance with translation and transcription. Many thanks also go to our Patreon subscribers who fund the very research you get to listen to. If you want to throw a little loose change at this project, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash slash queer. That's S-L-A-S-H, queer. You can also find our slash queer merchandise on Threadless, and we are still accepting donations via Coffee. The links to all of the above are in the description for this episode. Thanks also to you, our wonderful listeners. You keep this project of ours afloat even in the most challenging of times. This episode was recorded on location in Cape Town, South Africa. Music in this episode was composed by our resident audio king, Sam Clay. If you enjoyed this episode or have any feedback, please get in touch on Instagram or Twitter at at slash queer or email us at info at slash queer dot com. Until we have your company once more, stay kind, stay radical, and stay queer.